Welcome to the New Books Network. All right, everybody, welcome. Welcome back to this uh, incredible channel. I am Jay Schiffman, your host and the host of the Choose Your Struggle podcast and the founder of that organization. Today with me, I have a, a really wonderful guest, someone I'm very excited to talk to because this book was incredible. It is Dr. Susan Boyd. She is a scholar, activist, and a distinguished professor emerita at the University of Victoria. Her research examines a variety of topics related to the history of drug prohibition and resistance uh, to it, drug law and policy, including maternal drug use, maternal and state conflicts, film and culture, radio and print media, heroin-assisted treatment, community-based research, and qualitative research mythology. We're here today to talk about her latest book, Heroin and Illustrated History, which focuses on two centuries of Canadian uh, heroin regulation and reveals the deep roots of our current failure to address the overdose death epidemic caused by criminalizing and pathologizing drug users and resisting harm reduction policies. Dr. Boyd, thank you so much for being with me today. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to talk with you, Jay. So the first question I, I want, I'm, I, we're going to talk a lot about the book and a lot about your work, but right away, the, the, the one that I am so curious about is it, for, for, for the listeners who have not seen this book yet, please look it up online. Uh, obviously, go buy it. We'll talk about that later. But it is an absolutely stunning, visually beautiful book. And that seems to be a constant theme with your work. Before we get to the books, that, uh, this book itself and, the, and, and, the, and the, the information within, why has that been so important to you to make your book so visually stunning? Yeah, I think about 20 years ago, um, through teaching, my students kept bringing up films and uh, TV shows that they had watched that depicted drugs or people who use drugs or traffickers and, you know, brought them up in class. I would teach the sociology of drug use and the history of um, drug regulation in Canada. And I was so struck um, by their descriptions of the uh, storylines the narratives and the visuals. Uh, and so I started to look more closely at that as well and to learn more about sort of the impact of stereotypical images that we see over and over and over and again that, um, that we assume um, have some meaning. I guess a good example would be, and I bring it up in the book, is if we see someone injecting a drug in an alleyway or a crowded hotel room, we assume bad, that's bad drug use. But if we see a needle and injection in what looks like a hospital setting, we assume, oh good, you know, medical use of a drug. And I, I wanted to explore more fully the power of representation and how we learn from representation, but that it also contributes to stereotyping and marginalization. Um, But outside of that, some of the imagery related to the history of drug prohibition and drug use is stunning. And why wouldn't you want to include illustrations um, to enhance the story that you're telling. Um, For myself, I thought "Hmm, maybe a person wouldn't be interested in drug policy or drug prohibition, but they might pick up the book and be enticed by the visuals um, in the way that I am too. So yes, I think uh, 
visual representation is quite powerful. And as a scholar, I wanted to explore that more fully in my books. And I know from looking at your long, illustrious list of, of past publications, that depictions in media was uh, something you did choose to focus on, which I thought was really interesting. Yes, yes. Uh, kind of looking at all of your books first, before we get into this one in particular, though, you've focused on everything from pregnancy, as we said, depictions in the media, women's rights when it comes to drug use and drug mm-hmm. policy. I guess the question I love asking as somebody who does this work because it's so important to me, uh, you know, those of us who do this, we don't wake up and decide, you know, I'm going to focus on with my life drugs. So so what was it about this that that hooked you, that pulled you in? And then I guess the, the follow up question of that is what made you go? I want to cover all these incredibly diverse topics in this realm. I think my interest derived from uh my youth, you know, I was a teenager in the late 60s and early 70s, and it was a time of experimentation with drugs that were criminalized. But also I um, had older sisters who dated vets who had come back from Vietnam, who had uh, used heroin um, in that setting. And many of them stopped using it when they came back to the States. Um, Some didn't. But I was curious about the um, hypocrisy of, like, we have these drugs, alcohol and tobacco, that are uh, very toxic, and uh, we know that there's many associated harms related to them, and they're considered to be, uh, you know, they're legal drugs that an adult can access. And I couldn't understand why this other set of drugs, especially cannabis, um, were criminalized. And I could see right away, coming from a working class background, that it was the most marginalized in society that were being arrested, you know, and imprisoned for drug offenses. So that was quite clear to me. I lived in the United States till I was 17. When I came up to Canada, you know, it's a similar system, not as big, obviously. We have a smaller population in Canada. That's what first brought me um, to the work. But I had friends and family, you know, as well, who were participating in drug use. And what I saw on the screen or what I read about people who use criminalized drugs, it didn't reflect the people that I knew. And I also started to work in harm reduction. I started with a few other women, the first um, harm reduction service in Vancouver, BC for uh, women who were pregnant and mothers uh, who use illicit drugs. And there again, the literature on mothers who use drugs was so negative. And what I was experiencing in my work with the women, my collaboration with them was something completely different. So I think that's always been a motivating force in my work is that I felt like the voices of the people who are most impacted by our drug policies are not heard enough. Um, We hear a bit more now than we did, let's say, in the 80s and uh, early 90s. Um, But that's completely contributable to drug user unions and harm reduction activists who are at the table and demanding change. Um, So 
I'm interested in that resistance. I'm interested in that movement to change this very punitive policies that infiltrate not just, you know, in relation to our drug law, but the policies that we have around housing and health and treatment, um, social services and child protection, um, all of these other institutions that regulate people who are suspected of illegal drug use. Well, so many incredible points there. And I I will say that one thing uh, that I thought was so incredible or or so um, illuminating about this book was that you did such an expert job of tying all of these threads together. As you kind of just laid out, you know, too often when we talk about drug use or drug policy, we focus on just that, the drug use, the drug policy. And and it's never that simple, right? We have all of these other factors uh, that, that, that come into play. And this book does that so expertly well of, of helping, you know, uh, go through the, the, the decades of different policy implications that tie into this issue. And I guess my question now getting into the book itself is when you decided to write this, why did you decide that now was the right time to write this this history of heroin? I have to say, I often have a lot of projects on the go. I think that's a, an issue I have. You know, when I hear about something, I immediately start uh, thinking about how I could speak to that issue. Um, but I had written a book in 2000. 2017 called Busted. Um, It's an illustrated history of Canadian drug prohibition. So I looked at the prohibition of um, all drugs in the history. Um, But while I was doing that, I noticed that the drug heroin itself was quite demonized from the 1920s on, and that a lot of Canadian and U.S. policy um, centered around this idea of who the heroin user was or the, you know, quotation junkie. Um, And I wanted to explore that a bit more, but two things happened that spurred on this book. Um, One was that I was invited by a group called SNAP. Um, David Murray facilitated this group. They were the only North Americans to receive heroin-assisted treatment at that time in Vancouver and some in Montreal. But the Vancouver group, after the clinical study ended, where they received heroin-assisted treatment, were just pretty well abandoned. You know, they weren't uh, offered heroin-assisted treatment ongoing, they were um, given the option of abstaining, you know, from the drug or um, receiving methadone maintenance, you know, the sort of conventional treatment, drug substitution treatments that we had at that time. And so they got together, uh, this group of people from the clinical study, and they started meeting weekly at Bandu, which is our drug user union in Vancouver. And to talk about their experience, but they politicized quite quickly and wanted to tell their own story about being participants in the clinical trial, how their life was enhanced by um, being provided a legal substitution drug that worked for them. And they wanted to advocate change uh, in Canada about drug substitution. They asked me if I would collaborate with them to write their own story. So I met with them and 
we started the project, you know, and I thought it would just be a one-off thing, but it ended up that we worked together from 2011 to uh, 2021, I guess, um, 10 or 11 years. But meeting with them weekly was really an eye-opener because shortly afterwards, another clinical trial started up and many of the members um, were participants in that as well. So I got to see firsthand from them and to hear from them um, what was going on in their lives um, and the need to roll out drug substitution programs that were flexible and inviting, um, but also to include heroin as one of the drugs that would be provided. Because at the same time that the group invited me to work with them, we saw a rise in preventable um, illegal drug overdose deaths. So those two things were uh, colliding with one another. And you know, being a researcher in relation to drug policy, I thought, well, wouldn't any sensible government just roll out drug substitution programs and make them available to people so that they don't die? Because in Canada, it's specifically related to um, illegal drugs, um, not through drug prescribing, the overdose crisis here. But that didn't happen. Meanwhile, COVID occurred too a little later into this, and I saw how in Canada especially, but around the world, governments both at you know the federal, provincial, or for you, the state level, municipal, folded out all this new policy related to COVID and COVID, you know, safety from COVID. And I thought, well, they can act when they want to, the governments, quickly. Um, so those are some of the events that occurred that spurred me on to put the book together. I was already, for the group, researching more and more about heroin, the drug itself, and the regulation of heroin, so that I could better support them. Um, But then I started thinking uh, more seriously about doing another illustrated book so that other people could think about these issues um, and, you know, inform themselves about Canadian drug regulation and specifically around heroin and opioids. It seems to me, uh, and you are such a pro at this, I would love your your, your thoughts on this, but the, the history of heroin almost has, um, I'll say, two parallel tracks. You have fact, right, which you do an expert job of, of chronic, of, of, of diving into in this book but then you also have the demonization which is right next to it and you you also do an incredible job of showing that in, in this book and the two sometimes meet and most of the time don't that 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 a lot of what uh people know and listeners can't see i'm using air quotes here about heroin is far from fact right i mean that is so much of this history was there was there anything in particular that when you were researching that you were just blown away by or were or did you come into this already knowing that this was going to be maddening Mm, i knew a bit that it would be maddening um but i have to say even i was shocked uh i think one of my goals in the book was not to demonize the drug, but also not to sensationalize or romanticize the drug. I mean, it's a drug. It has therapeutic value, 
And diacetylmorphine, which is, you know, the clinical name for heroin, is used in other nations, uh, therapeutic use. And in fact, in Canada, since the 1980s, a doctor can prescribe diacetylmorphine um, for end-of-life treatment. What we didn't have approval for until more recently was that it could be used to treat, um, you know, in quotes, addiction. And in Canada, um, we criminalize any doctor who would provide drugs to what they called a known addict. I think what uh, surprised me even more, and each time I delve into drug policy, Canada has quite a reputation internationally as being sort of benign and, you know, a leader of harm reduction and having less punitive drug policy. But when you read the history of drug policy regulation, you know, you start researching, that's not true. We were actually the leaders in relation to federal drug uh, regulation and punitive um, regulation. And in fact, uh, Drug czar in the U.S. was quite jealous of our first federal law in 1908, you know, because the Harrison Act wasn't until 1914. So they saw Canada as a leader, and Canada saw themselves as that as well, and uh, communicated that to other nations too. But one concept that occurred in the Canada that was different than, let's say, Britain and even the U.S. was this idea of the criminal addict. And the criminal addict um, meant that the person who used, let's say, heroin was a criminal first and, in quotes, an addict secondly. And that even if you provided drugs for this person, this criminal addict, they would continue to be a threat to society because they were criminals. And so this idea or this trope about people who use drugs really had a negative impact in our drug policy because we never even created um, public drug treatment in Canada until the late 1950s and early 1960s. Um, And even so, that was in urban areas and wasn't even available to other people. So basically, prison was the place that you were going to go um, if you were using criminalized drugs in Canada. And cannabis really wasn't um, part of the discussion at all until the late 1960s, early 70s. You know, the drug charges here and convictions were for um, heroin, cocaine, um, sometimes morphine, um, less and less opium as the opium den. The very few opium dens were closed. But I want to give an example. Like in the 1940s, here's like, less than 400 drug convictions in Canada. The shift from the late 1960s and 70s was astronomical and similar in the States, you know, when they started to regulate cannabis um, more seriously and people, you know, took it up as a drug of choice. Um, But this idea of the criminal addict really shaped our policy here in relation to not providing any support for people who might be using substances um, and seeing them purely as criminal and with prison as a solution. And in fact, our first drug treatment um, in Canada was implemented in a prison, so not outside of a prison. There's no attempt in any way to deal with um, issues outside of a prison setting for quite a long time. 
And that had consequences. And I think the other thing that really doesn't surprise me, because I've known it since the beginning of my experience uh, working with people who use substances and my research as well, is that the consequences of our drug use is linked to our social status in society. So if you're rich, uh, someone gave the example of Keith Richards, you know, and his heroin use, um, you know, you have available uh, a legal defense, you have money to buy larger amounts of the drug, you have money to have a nanny and a, a cook, um, you know, all your needs are taken care of, uh, including your legal needs. It's not to say that people, you know, that wealthy people don't get uh, criminalized. But if you're poor and you're marginalized or racialized in society, the social consequences will be much more severe. And we can see that, you know, clearly in Canada and the United States in relation to who we imprison, you know, who's moving through the criminal justice system, whose children are being apprehended by child protection, you know, who is being discriminated when they go to get um, health treatment or drug treatment. Um, it so clearly plays out that way. So, I, you know, I wanted in all my work to bring that uh into closer focus so that people can understand that some of the um, issues that we associate with, let's say, heroin use or other substance use is not necessarily about the drug. It's a social environment that we use and the policing of certain uh, groups of people and individuals, that that's what we're seeing as the consequences of that. And, and again, I said this earlier, but listeners, you know, please check this out, this book out, not only because it's beautiful and, and, and really well done, but as I said, and as it's, uh, you know, we're kind of relaying here, it does an incredible job of, of addressing these other variables and not just focusing on the drug, which all too often sometimes uh, these books tend to do. I, I appreciate, you know, that, that you, another thing you do in the book so well is, is you do bring in the U.S. from time to time, right? I mean, this is a book on the history of Canada, but unfortunately, because of the U.S.'s outsized role in uh, drug policy around the world, you cannot discuss these uh, topics without bringing the U.S. And, and personally, before I read this, my only knowledge of Canada's uh, history with, with drug policy and the war on drugs was thanks to Garth Mullins and Crackdown. So definitely a big shout out to, to Garth Mullins. Um, but, but the one thing I think is so interesting is, yes, it... I was blown away by the fact that the Canada was more strict at times and even more uh, dark in their, their treatment of this early on. And then the roles kind of switched, at least when it comes to harm reduction in the way that the countries are currently handling that. Um, talk a little bit about that, the passage of each other, like ships in the night of, of the U.S. and Canada kind of heading in different directions and, and what, uh, what you kind of relate that to. Hmm. Yeah, it's true. They did uh, start to shift in relation to drug policy. But to say, when we had a conservative government you know, um, in power, 
they pull back the harm reduction. You know, the the conservative political parties in Canada are not pro harm reduction at all, and sobriety, um, abstinence, you know, sort of their mantra. So keeping that in mind, they haven't been in uh, federal power. Our drug laws are federal in Canada. So in the U.S., there's federal law, but there's also state law. So we don't have that. Uh, problematic to deal with in Canada. It can be to our, it can be negative, but also it can be to our benefit here. But there was a total shift in the late 1980s and 1990s. Um, we learned about harm reduction from European countries, you know, Liverpool, the Netherlands, Amsterdam, what was going on there. Uh, People who use drugs themselves were demanding change and setting up services to save lives. At that time, it was HIV AIDS and hepatitis C and overdose deaths. But they were making a difference and they were being heard. And so in Canada, activists and came together and just set up services. You know, And of course, they are at risk for being um, charged and criminalized themselves. And we saw that with the cannabis um, uh, resistance to cannabis laws as well. You know, it's a tricky business um, trying to do drug activism and not being arrested and suffer from that. But anyway, in the 90s, uh, here on the West Coast in Vancouver, we had a terrible overdose um, situation that was exacerbated by hepatitis C and HIV AIDS rates, very high rates as well. And so the community came together, you know, activists came together to try to figure out what to do. But we also had a drug policy coordinator um, at the municipal level, uh, Donald McPherson, who wrote a report, well, went out and talked to people and uh uh, traveled around the world to see what other people were doing, brought people into Vancouver and pretty well educated uh, people in Vancouver, at least, about harm reduction, about saving lives, about the harms of prohibition. And we had a coroner's report at that time, too, in the 1990s that really um, took to task our drug laws and said that we needed to expand drug substitution programs to consider heroin as a substitution drug. And we had um, provincial government uh, saying the same thing. We also had in the early 70s, the Ladane Commission was a commission on drug use in Canada. And even in that commission, they recommended that cannabis be decriminalized or that we legally regulate cannabis and that we also do a clinical trial for her and assisted treatment. It wasn't called that at that time. So there was this movement that was going on and it definitely came from the sort of liberal and uh, left-leaning political parties and activists to make change. But I think one of the things that help that change to occur was that there was many public meetings about the issue for many people. And I know that when you're working in the field or that you come from a family or friends where uh, the use of drugs is common or, you know, occasional, you've met people who use drugs. 
there's less chance that you're going to dehumanize people who use criminalized drugs. But for many people, they haven't had those encounters. And these public meetings actually provided a setting then that people could meet um, others who have used criminalized drugs, hear what their lives have been like, hear how they've been impacted by our policy. And I think that took off in Canada. But I don't want to make it sound like it's all rosy up here because it isn't. You know, it's quite a challenge still. Um, BC, the province of BC that I live in, has done well rolling out harm reduction services and drug substitution programs. And um, we call them overdose prevention sites here um, where you can go and use your drug and not be criminalized. Um, and in January of uh, end of January 2023, the province of BC has an exemption from the federal government where we're going to decriminalize small personal amount of some drugs. You can have up to 2.5 grams. That'll be an experiment for three years. Why it isn't rolled out for the rest of Canada, you know, that in itself shows you that we have such a long way to go here. Um, and that in itself won't solve the overdose, illegal overdose crisis, because if you don't have drug substitution programs that are flexible, that are publicly funded, um, that uh, both in rural and urban areas, people will still die. Um, so, but we have had that shift here and much discussion. But I think similar to the United States, let's say, uh, the analogy with Roe versus Wade being overturned by the Supreme Court. You know, there's an idea that when we win a right or, you know, when the human rights of a group of people is acknowledged that that's it, you know, work done. But we can see through history that this isn't true and that you have to constantly be vigilant um, because there's a tendency in societies, not just U.S. or Canadian, to categorize people to other people um, and to see them as less human than yourselves. And, you know, with the, in North America, especially with, you know, white supremacy, uh, colonialism, which is still exists and very much um, uh, influences our policies, especially drug policies, we can see that this work is ongoing. And so that any, mm, any alternative and creative projects that we um, create could be taken away by the next government <laughs> easily. Um, so I think education is quite important in relation to um, trying to counter, to provide an alternative story to the very negative one that I allude to in the book, uh, the one that we've seen um, through our federal and state drug agencies and uh, through movies and TV, you know, over and over and over again, these ideas about addiction, punishment as a solution, disorder. Um, yeah, I think we have to continue to provide that alternative narrative so that people can see that there's other paths that we can take um, that wouldn't be destroying individuals or communities, um, you know, or even uh, supply producers, you know, um, where the drug war is much more violent than it is, let's say, in Canada.
Well, I'm so glad you took that in that direction at the end because my next question there was, you know, I I, I love the Rover's weight analogy, and the one I was going to use was was uh, staying on the topic of drugs, but was the the what we saw with cannabis here in the United States in the '70s when it was looked like we were years, if, if months even, away from possibly having a national decriminalization, if not outright legalization, only to have the rug pulled out from under us and gone completely backward. And so it sounds like you are saying that it, that is still a possibility around this, and education is a major key. Uh, uh, sort of on that note, are you seeing uh, a, a, an acceptance or a willingness to use books like your own in classrooms, whether college, high school, whatever the case is, to make sure that education is is reaching the people that, that need to hear it. Yeah, I've got some professors have um, used my books. Um, I'm not sure yet with heroin. It's gotten a lot of publicity here in Canada. Um, but with my book, Busted, uh, the Illustrated History of Drug Prohibition, um, professors have used it in the classroom. Um, and uh, there's been a good response to that. And when I was writing the book, I had, you know, a readership in mind. And the first readership or the first reader was that anyone from a late teenager to a senior citizen could pick up this book and understand what I was saying. But that I was going to provide evidence, you know, research evidence. It wasn't just my claims or my opinion. I have plenty of opinions, but the book was to try to um, provide the evidence to demonstrate what our history had been and what the impact of that history is. Um, The other was to provide a narrative for politicians, policymakers um, to read the book and provide them a language to uh, change our policy, to understand our policy and the consequences of it. One of the other goals of the book was to provide that amazing history of resistance in Canada, and it exists in the United States as well. Activists, harm reduction activists, parents coming to the forefront and making and demanding change. I wanted people to understand that that history is strong and that individuals coming together can make a difference. It may be a long, hard challenge, um, no doubt. I mean, when you talk to the cannabis activists, They suffered for decades, right? And uh, but here in Canada, you know, we federally federally regulated cannabis, and now as an adult, you can use that drug. Um, So I wanted to provide a snapshot of that resistance because I think it's important that we not be passive in the face of discrimination um, and punitive policies, that we know that we can come together and provide change um, at any time in history. And it can be harder at sometimes, you know, more difficult. And other times there's a, a movement behind you to do that. But certainly there's a global movement to change drug policy. Well, and sort of on that resistance front, you know, one thing we're seeing here in the United States is a a really sad push to keep books like this out of the hands of the people who need to to, to read them in the name of uh, not making people uncomfortable and and all this kind of garbage that that we keep hearing mostly from from the right. Is that kind of thing happening in Canada? And what, you know, what do you say to, to those sorts of movements? 
Certainly, there's always subtle um, censorship going on. You know, as I said, when the conservatives were in federal uh, power, they didn't really tolerate discussions around harm reduction as easily as other political groups. But we're not seeing it on the scale as the United States, I have to say. Um, you know, we don't have the incarceration rates as the United States. One of the reasons that I did look at Canada was that to demonstrate a bit that our histories, though many times align with each other, at other times they're quite different, you know, and we've taken different routes. Um, and you could say, as you mentioned earlier, that Canada did take up harm reduction um, in a stronger way than it was taken up in the United States. I don't think that's a failure of activists in the United States. I just think it's a, a failure of politicians and policymakers there to embrace harm reduction and alternatives to punitive drug policy. And I think that's due to U.S. history, too, you know, related to slavery and um, colonization there, and white supremacy. Um, but I think it's important to look around the world, too, you know, when you're dealing with an issue at home, you know, or locally, to see, well, how are they dealing with this internationally? Are other nations working with this differently? Why couldn't we, you know, adopt some of those policies or services? And there's always that argument um, from prohibitionists, so to say, oh, well, that's, you know, they have a totally different system, you know, that won't apply here. But you can modify a service to fit your country. And, uh, you know, for example, like in Canada, we have uh, publicly funded health care. Well, that isn't as available in the United States. Um, so there may be other ways that a state or municipality could fund services um, through the health care that's available there. Um, but I do think it's worthwhile lifting our heads and looking to see what's going on in other countries. In one of my books, um, when I was looking at women in drug policy and law, um, from witches to crack moms, I looked at drug policy in the UK, Canada, and the US. And it was so striking to me at that time, especially the alternative programs that were that existed in the UK. Um, that we didn't have yet in Canada, nor the U.S. Um, and a shout out to National Advocates for Pregnant Women in the U.S. Um, they're an amazing organization that are, you know, have been fighting the long battle around women's reproductive and human rights, um, especially in relation to drug issues. I've learned a lot from them. Um, so I think it's just good to see what's going on and to know that, you know, History is unpredictable. You know, we, like I said earlier, we can adopt what we might think are good policies and then they can be threatened down the road quite easily. So I think the idea of education, communication is important. But to also look at the, you know, structural factors that, shape our present day lives, you know, the economic, the social environment, uh, racial inequality, um, gender violence and gender inequality, all of these things intersect <laughs> with drug policy. You can't separate them. You can't assume um, everything will be okay if we 
legally regulate all drugs, things will be better. But, you know, some other kind of punitive policy will be enacted if we don't deal with the other multi-layered factors in society. Amen. Uh, so which, uh, what direction, if, if I may ask, and if you even know yet, are you going to head with the next book? What, what's going to come next from, from Dr. Boyd? I'm not sure. I was thinking, because I just recently retired, though I'm still doing work um, with the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition and other groups um, who are trying to end drug prohibition. I'm not sure. I thought I might give myself a little rest <laughs> and see what came up. Um, I, I have some ideas about writing essays just on topics that around drug issues that interest me, um, but not so much pulling in the evidence, but an essay talking about those issues, possibly not from a personal space, because I'm uncomfortable with that, only in the sense that if there's anything I've learned in my research around drugs and in my uh, friendships and with people uh, who use substances is that there's not one experience. You can't create policy on one experience, you know, that there's multiple experiences of using drugs, the consequences of using drugs, getting out of using drugs or getting into a drug substitution program. Um, so I don't know what the next inspiration will be for me, um, but certainly something will come up um, and I'll be happy to engage with that material and those events. Uh, but if I had my way, there would be no more books um, or essays about punitive drug policy or punitive racial and gender injustice and class injustice um, that we move towards a future that was different than our present, so that there would be no need for these books except to remind us of what had happened and that we, as individuals, can come together and make change. Well, as my people say, Baruch Hashem, from your mouth to God's ears, right? So, uh, Dr. Boy, this was fantastic. Thank you so much for being here. As we wrap up, Please shout out where people can find you online, where they can buy the book, obviously most important, and anything else you want the listeners to know. Well, they can find the book at Firmwood Publishing. Um, your bookstores can order it in, or you can order the book from the publisher directly. And uh, I don't have a big website presence, but I do have a susancboyd.ca website. It's, it's quite... Mm, bare bones, but it talks about some of my work. Um, you know, take a look at the other books I've written about drug policy um, because they do look at different aspects of this issue. But I just thank you, Jay, for having me um, speak with you today, this conversation. Um, I'm quite pleased to have been part of your podcast. Well, thank you so much, and I know the listeners will enjoy it.